Hey, if you got a Bible, Mark chapter 14, you can meet me there. We are nearing the epic conclusion of this series in the second book of your New Testament, which if you're new to the series, you can check out all the old messages online. If you're new to the Bible, I would encourage you, uh, new to the whole Christianity thing, start in the book of Mark. Read it through. Not only is it theologically rich, but it is also the shortest account that we have of Jesus his life. And when it comes to reading, come on somebody, shorter the better, right? Isn't that what we learned? That's what I'm talking about. So start in Mark. But uh, a message this morning I'm calling That Makes Two of Us. Mark 14, let's go. Starting in verse 1. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Apparently there was a point in history where that was a bad, a bad thing, rioting. <laughs> I shouldn't joke about stuff like that. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. Perfume is still made from essence of nard, by the way. It comes from India. She broke open the jar and perfumed poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you and you can help them whenever you want to. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Here we are over 2,000 years later, remembering and discussing then. After she did this, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard that why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. God, thank you for your word. We're asking you now to do what only you can do and speak to our hearts through it. God, we've come to hear from you. Nobody has come for any other reason but to be changed, to be made new, to be strengthened, to be encouraged. God, give us the uh, peace that you have promised. Give us a clear spirit, attentive hearts, and uh, meet us right where we are, God. Let each person hear what they need to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in his famous novel that you've probably heard of, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote these words. I want you to hear this. He says, With every day and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to the truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck. Hear this, that man is not truly one, but truly two. You are 
two. That makes two of us. Look at your neighbor and tell him, are you twins? Ask him, ask him, are you twins? Are you twins? Are you twins? Some of you, some of you actually are twins. So that's an interesting, but are you yourself twins? Because see, as Stevenson points out, we all have within us two competing virtues. The Chinese call it yin and yang. There's some religious institutions that will call it good and evil, mind and matter, light and dark. In Stevenson's words, Jekyll and Hyde. In the context of Mark, we can call it Judas and Mary. Why Mary. Oh, because uh, in the Gospel of John, we actually learn that the mystery woman here in Mark, her name is Mary. She is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. How come Mark didn't just tell us her name was Mary? Well, Mark's Gospel was written very early on in history, and Mary's probably still would have been alive. And if you know church history, you know that they were getting fed to the lions and murdered, so he didn't want to let anybody know uh, right away that this was Mary, because she probably still would have been alive. But John's gospel was written much later. But we should not confuse this account with the story that is told in Luke also about a woman who washes Jesus's feet. That happened to be a woman of the night. And uh, Jesus is kind of confusing because Jesus is at a guy named Simon's house again. It's just Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the former leper. Plus, we learn here in Mark that Jesus is anointed head to toe, whereas in Luke, He just has his feet washed. But regardless, Mary is the one who does this, and her act of love inspired and motivated Judas's act of betrayal. That's what we read. Uh, uh, She anoints Jesus's head in verse 3 by verse 10. Then Judas goes to the leading priests. This is important to point out because I feel like as Christians, sometimes we think that everyone would love Jesus and follow Jesus if he only did more for them. Like if Jesus showed up in their life and spoke to them or did a miracle for them, then they would believe in him. Not true. Judas Iscariot shows that is not the case. For three years, Judas heard Jesus pray and preach, and he saw him perform miracles. For three years, Judas was perfectly loved and continually served and cared for by Jesus. And in response to this, Judas betrayed Jesus sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Yet even in that act of betrayal, this was entirely about Judas. Our passage tells us Judas looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus. He wasn't going to go out of his way, you know. Betrayal is a tricky thing. There's no reason to inconvenience yourself as you stab somebody in the back. But I want us to do a little bit of a comparison between Judas and Mary, because here's my hypothesis. I've already pointed out we have within us a little bit of Judas and a little bit of Mary. There's two of us in our hearts. And the hardest thing to do in life is to overcome the Judas side of your heart. Hardest thing to do in life is to put Judas to death. Judas is gritty. Judas is grimy. Judas is like Rambo. Okay, you simply cannot get that fool to stop making movies. He should have done it a long time ago. But everybody is good for something, even if it's learning how to be a bad example. And so I want us to learn a few things from Judas. We learn from him first that sitting under good Bible teaching is not enough. 
You have to believe it. You have to put it into practice. You have to respond to it. Judas spent three years learning directly from Jesus, and he believed none of it. If he would have believed it, he would have put it into practice. I'll say it this way. You can know the truth, little t, and never know the truth, capital T. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, capital T, and the life. And you can know a lot of true things and never have it make any difference because you don't actually know Jesus. And Jesus said that when you follow him, people will know it because you're obedient to his commands. When you love him, you will do what he's commanded. It's why it's so confusing to me when I hear people say, well, that church, that pastor, I'm just not being fed. Well, Is that important? Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Being fed is important. Peter uh, was told by Jesus to feed my sheep. So as church leaders, I think that's an important task. But Jesus fed Judas perfectly, and it made no difference. What's the old saying? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So you're welcome to disagree with me on this, but I feel like my job isn't to feed you, it's to teach you how to feed yourself. My job is to lead you to good pastures and to show you good grass, but you're the one that has to ultimately feed yourself. And what you eat is equally as important as to, you know, who prepared it, right? If you're just eating Twinkies all day, you're not actually feeding your body. So it's important what you're putting in. And now, if you do disagree with me and you leave and say, no, I just wasn't being, make sure you tell me, well, I just wasn't being fed. That will make me feel better when you leave, but... Bear in mind, sometimes as leaders, as friends, hear me, as parents, we bear no responsibility for a person who deceives themselves, wrecks their lives, and shipwrecks their faith. Judas did it, and it had nothing to do with Jesus. It had more to do with my second point, which is your heart will follow your wallet. Your heart follows your wallet. Long before Judas was railing against Jesus, he was robbing from Jesus. We learn in John chapter 12 that Judas was the chairman of the board. He was the one in charge of, uh, not chairman, the treasurer of the board. He was the one in charge of all the finances. And Judas was skimming a little bit off the top. He was making sure he was getting taken care of. And two for me and one for you. Tough ministry week this week. One for me, none for you. This is what makes it so ironic that Judas is the one sitting at the table who becomes indignant at Mary. When John tells the story, he says, Judas is the one that got so angry because you are what you despise the most. And he didn't actually care anything about the poor. He knew how much money he could make when he sold that expensive jar of perfume and put it into uh, the treasure chest over a year's wages. I'll preach it this way. If you want to change your heart, it's a good idea to start with your wallet particularly since Jesus says your heart will wind up wherever your treasure takes it. You probably know by now I'm a history guy, and in history there's a story told of General Sam Houston, who is a hero in Texas lore. He gave his life to Jesus in the twilight of his life, and so he decided that he would be baptized in a little country stream. He was down there with his friends and family and the pastor, and as he's getting ready to go into the water, he began emptying out his pockets, took out the pocket watch, took out his glasses, 
papers, pencil, anything that he had. And as he was getting ready to be immersed and baptized, the preacher noticed that Houston still had his wallet in his pocket. And, and he said, Mr. Houston, uh, you still have your wallet. Maybe you want to take that out. And it's reported that Houston replied, if there's any part of me that needs baptizing, it's my wallet. And he went in wallet and all, which shameless plug, there is still an opportunity for you to be baptized today. As Sherry mentioned, we're going to do baptisms at the end of service, and we don't believe there's any reason to wait. If God is speaking to your heart, you might have shown up dry, but you're going to leave wet. And we've got uh, extra t-shirts and extra towels and extra shorts. If you feel so inclined, Sherry can meet you at the back of uh, the service at the end and explain to you what that means. Matter of fact, we'll baptize you wallet and all if you want to go in that way. But finally, from Judas, we learn that you cannot lose your salvation, but you can fake it. See, Judas sat in on the Bible studies. He went on all the missions trip. He sang all the worship songs. And uh, for him, it was merely fakery. It's a charade. What's kind of weird is everybody looking in on Judas's life probably seemed like everything was fine. And it seemed to be working. But it was a farce. Is a show. My fear is there's a lot of self-identifying Christians who are just putting on a show. And there's a lot of self-identifying Christians who don't really understand what it means when Jesus says that you got to take up your cross daily and follow him. And that Jesus wants you to bear good fruit in life. And he, in fact, he's commanded us to bear fruit. And he tells all the, all the uh, other believers that if you want to know if there's really uh, a believer in your presence, you'll know by the fruit that they bear. That's why I like giving you opportunities uh, in this place to start serving. Uh, not because we need something from you, but because we want something for you. And we want you to have the opportunity to produce good fruit and follow Jesus. And if there's any one thing that I'm most proud of about this church, is that the new people who come in our doors over and over again, Again, the consistent feedback that we get is I felt welcome. I felt like the people were authentic. They seemed genuine. They seemed genuinely happy that I was there. And I always like to say they are because we've put them in a place where they're allowed to use the gifting that God has given them. And they found a niche where they get to produce good fruit. Our volunteers do that. You have an opportunity to do it as well. But let's briefly talk about Mary because she's living in your heart as well. And from Mary, we learn that when you're humble enough to sit at Jesus's feet, you're more likely to hear what Jesus is saying with his mouth. I would argue that Mary might have been the only one who actually heard what Jesus was saying. Because if you'll read the Gospel of Mark, you'll find over and over that Jesus kept telling the disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. The religious uh, leaders are going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. But three days later, I will rise from the dead. You can write this off on the side of your notes. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.34. Three times in a row, Jesus kept saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. So it's not a stretch to think that uh, the time Jesus was at Mary and Martha's house and Lazarus was there. And uh, remember when Martha was in the kitchen and she was trying to get the wings and nachos ready for everybody who was out in the living room. And uh, Mary was sitting there listening to Jesus preach. And like I said, the disciples are all there. Martha comes out and makes her demands known to Jesus. She says, can you tell Mary to get in here and help me? Do 
do you want soggy nachos, Jesus? Because that's where this leads to, with no help in here. This is slightly paraphrased, by the way. Uh, we're, we're not sure the nachos were there, but we're not sure they're not either, okay? So, uh, but she says, we need a little help. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen wisely. She's listening to me. Well, everything you're doing, that doesn't really matter. That can all wait. And so we learned that not only did Mary choose wisely, but she also listened closely. Because it's no stretch to think that this was Jesus's message. I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise from the dead. And on the Friday afternoon that Jesus was crucified and hanging on the cross, the smell of perfume lofted through the air because it was all over his hair and all over his feet because of what Mary did. Here's what else Mary teaches us. How we worship is what other people will notice. How you worship your Savior is what other people will notice. And sometimes uh, what happened with Mary will happen to us. Mary was scolded harshly. She was criticized. You've got to be prepared for that. It happened with King David. King David, as he's bringing the tabernacle back, or the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, he's dancing and making sacrifices and he doesn't have a shirt on. And his wife is like, what are you doing? Act dignified. You're the king. And he says, woman, I'll become more undignified than this because I'm dancing for my Savior, which is why we don't care that if you want to come in here and start clapping to some music and raising your hands and moving a little bit and if you want you know if you needed to start the fire and make the pizza you know what i'm saying like prepare that and start please do not tell my wife i did that in front of you all okay she will be uh, you know it's bad it would be bad for me but uh we don't care if you do that because how you worship is what other people and people will when they see you they're gonna know you know what god must have done something in their life because they're all about it as I was studying for this message, a guy named Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a message over 200 years ago. Let that sink in. But it, it came up in my study notes. And his sermon was called Mary's Remarkable Act. And he said something very striking. He said something along the lines, the thing that shocked everybody about Mary's act of worship was its uselessness. It's not useful to be anointed for $10 million. It'd be useful for Jesus to have his uh, feet washed with 10 or $20, but a year's wages, you don't need that. Nobody needs that. It's way over the top, Compe- completely useless. But now we begin to understand the difference between Judas and Mary. Judas found Jesus useful. Mary found Jesus beautiful. You might want to jot that down. Judas found Jesus useful. Mary found Jesus beautiful. Judas served Jesus to get things. Mary served Jesus to get Jesus, to get more of him, to be more like him, to worship him. That's what I want to put in front of you. In every one of us, there's a Judas and a Mary. There's a part of your soul operating off the religious paradigm that if I live a good life, then God has to bless me. And I'm using God to get his blessings. Yet there's another part of you that understands that what he has done and when you perceive his grace and you respond to him is done as an object of beauty, as someone worthy of our worship. That is the person that you need to be listening to. Because here's what Judas does. Judas says, if I do this 
and this, I ought to get this and this. And if I don't get this and this, then I really don't want this, this being God. Because if God's not blessing me, then there's no point in worshiping God. So God must be useful because God is an instrument. God is a means to an end. But that's not Mary. Uh, Mary serves God out of the shining, satisfying magnificence of who he is in and of himself. A religious person says God is a means to an end. Therefore, your obedience is always a burden. Your emotions are always going to be up and down because the thing that you're after is not really God. You're after a good life. After a good report card, a good job, good house, a good car, people's approval. And since circumstances are always going to be up and down, you're going to always be up and down in your emotions. A gospel person, a Mary, this is someone who believes that Jesus is an end to himself. Someone who believes that the Lord's not a genie. He's God. As a result, obedience is a joy. Service is spontaneous. Your emotions aren't up and down because the ultimate beauty of your life is Jesus and He doesn't change. Amen. Thank you. One of you is still with me. <laughs> so to grow in grace, to become more emotionally stable, to become a more generous person, it's to become more and more like Mary. It's to see Jesus as not an object of utility, but as of absolute beauty. Now, here's the problem with that. You might jot this down as well. Using God and serving God look remarkably similar. Using God, which is what Judas was doing, and serving God, which is what Mary does, they look remarkably similar. Here in Judas, we have a person who is doing everything that Jesus asked him to do. Here in Mary, we have a person who is doing everything Jesus asked her to do, right? Now, Judas is obviously doing it for selfish reason. He's doing it for a profit, whereas Mary is doing everything to please Jesus. But on the surface, they look exactly the same. What's different? Their motivations. Motivation is entirely different. So before we talk about fixing our motivations, might I suggest to you that the disciples were largely acting like Judas as well. If you'll uh, study this throughout the New Testament, you'll find that the other 11 disciples are constantly doing things for themselves. It's why when Jesus gives them the power to go out into the world and preach the news, but he gives them power to perform miracles and cast out demons, they come back and they start bragging. They're talking about, Jesus, even the demons are subject to our uh, words. And Jesus is like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't brag about that. What you should be happy about is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And then there's another time they're walking along and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God and sit at Jesus' right hand. And then two of the disciples even had their mom come up and start asking Jesus if they could be the ones that are the most, uh, you know, awarded in God's kingdom, which how humiliating is that? You're like, mom, come on. I'm just trying to follow Jesus over here. It's humiliating. But what's happening? There's an element of Judas in all of us. There's a temptation in all of us and all the disciples just to use Jesus to get things. What happened with Peter, the rock, the leader of leaders? What's he do shortly after our story? He betrays Jesus three times because there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. So listen, listen, this is vitally important for all of us to understand on our own journey. The only way you're going to know the difference between a Judas and a Mary, 
between serving God and using God, between pleasure and profit. The only way you'll know the motivation within your heart, own heart, it's when things go badly. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that, but there's almost no way to know what's down under the surface and deep in the depths of your soul until things go bad. It's why when you read just the few verses after this, Jesus's primary message, things are about to go bad. And you need to be aware of that. Because when things go bad, there's almost always a part of your heart that says, hey, where's the blessedness that I signed up for? Where's the uh, prosperity that I was promised? I thought Jesus was for me and no one can be against me and where I've been saying no and I've been abstaining. I've been keeping all the rules. I've been sacrificing. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And so far, everything is going wrong. In those moments, there's almost always a part of your heart that says, what good is this Christianity thing if this is what happens? And that's the Judas part of your heart. This is the part of your heart that's still operating on the principle of religion rather than relationship. So let me explain it like this, and then I'll tell you what you can write down. Because I know what you're wondering. You're wondering what everybody wonders. How can God, a good God, make the world work like this? Where the only way we understand our motivations is when something bad happens. I'll tell you why. He didn't. This is not how God designed the world to work. God designed the world to work perfectly. We're the ones who screwed that up. We're the ones that listen to the Judas side of our heart. We're the ones who listen to the temptation. You'll be like God if you make this decision. This wasn't God's plan. So what's God do in response to our wickedness? He sends his son, Jesus, because Jesus will do what no one is willing to do. Jesus will leave heaven where he sat on a throne where angels ministered to uh, him every single day. And he will come to this earth as a baby and grow up. And later in our story, he will sit on the floor like a slave. Matter of fact, uh, history tells us that there's only one thing a student was never required to do for their teacher. And whenever you had a guest in your home, it was the responsibility of the lowest ranking slave to come in and wash that person's feet. Because in a a time in history where you had to walk everywhere and there's dust on the road and you're in the desert and there's dung from all the animals also traveling on the road and you step in all these things, nobody wanted to make anybody wash their feet. And on this night, Jesus will come into the room and all the disciples will greedily sit down and nobody will think about washing anybody's feet. And Jesus will take off his cloak and tie a towel around his waist and he'll get down on his knees and one by one, he'll begin washing the disciples' feet. And ultimately, he'll come to the man who he knows is about to betray him and he'll look in Judas's eyes and he'll say, I love you. And he'll wash his feet. And for us sinners, that is indeed good news because Jesus loves his enemies. And when we're an enemy, like Judas is an enemy, Jesus will love us by serving us. Jesus got on the floor for Judas. He got on a cross for you. Jesus poured water on Judas's feet. He poured out his blood for you. Jesus 
cleanses part of Judas's body. He cleanses all of your soul. So write this down and then we're done. There's no growth without grief. There's no growth without grief. There's no way to understand the motivations in your heart and grow into the likeness of Jesus without grief. Jesus teaches us through experience that the blessing comes after the breaking. He had to be betrayed. He, he had to be tortured. He had to be executed. Mary had to be ridiculed before she was blessed with being the first one to see Jesus alive. Jesus met Mary in her grief on that Sunday morning, just like he'll meet you in your grief. And she was entrusted with the good news. He's alive. And remember what Jesus said early on? Whenever this good news is preached, this woman's act of love will be remembered. Here we are, remembering what her act. And I can't help but wonder what God might do through your grief. How might you grow in this season that God is trying to lead you through? Somebody to think about this week. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that is contained within it. God, these are hard truths to understand. That you would ask us to grow in grief. It's a hard thing to understand how you could love us enough to die on a cross for us. It's a hard thing for us to even think about our enemy being in our presence, someone who's about to betray us, someone who we've invested in, to do something so humble to, to get down on our knees and start washing their feet. God, it's amazing that you would have that type of love for us, that you would endure hours of torture in order to make the ultimate sacrifice for us. That you're not asking us to live a perfect life because you did that for us. And that you're not asking us to be punished for our sins because you took that punishment. And instead, we can be made new. We can be brought to life. As God looks down from heaven, he will see you in us. God, do what you promised to do and send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way and speak to our hearts. God, I just believe that there are people here, people watching online who have yet to make this decision to follow you. This might be the first time that you've ever heard this message that it has nothing to do with what you've done and everything to do with what Jesus has done. He just asks you to trust in him. To confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that He is Lord. And He promises you the power of His Holy Spirit to live in your life to make you new. To start living for Him. God, forgive us of our sin. Do what you promise. Make us new. Forgive us for trying to live life on our own. Forgive us for trying to make you a, an object of utility to get things from you. God, you're worth it because you've given us life. You've made a way for us to live eternally for, with you in heaven. Help us serve you passionately. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.